Exodus chapter 1, if you have your Bibles uh, open uh, there, please. I don't know, I'm sure you all uh, have had this kind of experience of seeing things differently when you're traveling in a different way. If you're traveling in a train, you see scenery differently from when you're traveling in a car. I was walking down a townhead road, a road that I'm nearly always in a car, and I saw things quite differently. I noticed that there's a place, so obviously it's a, a North Lanarkshire uh, place, but there was no indication of what it was. But beside it, they had a big polytunnel and raised beds. And I thought, goodness, I've never seen that before. And yet, I don't know how many times I've been up and down that place, never noticed it before. And it's quite common that you are so familiar with something, uh, but you have never really taken it in. Uh, you've seen something before, uh, but you've never seen it in the sense of noticing it, remarking on it, uh, seeing it in its detail. Uh, what I saw when I walked had never before made any impact on me. It simply was part of the, the, uh, the background, as it were, because I'd been in the car, travelling faster, but on foot. I saw it. And sometimes parts of the Bible are like that. Uh, we're familiar with the storyline. We feel we own it, but it has never owned us never gripped us, uh, we've never taken in its contours, been gripped by its location in the bigger picture, seen the sharp lines of the narrative, the vivid colour of the detail. And as we begin a, a series in Exodus, we're coming, I'm sure nearly all of us, to a part of Scripture with which we are very familiar, because this is great material for teaching in Sunday school and for using in holiday clubs. And uh, Disney have uh, made its own production of the Prince of Egypt and so on. It's very, very familiar. And at one level we can say this is the story of Moses. This is the life of Moses. We're about to begin a series on the life of Moses. But it's so much more than that. Uh, it's full of the big themes of the Bible. Exodus uh, is closely linked to the book of Genesis, and we're going to see how uh, Moses underlines that for us uh, at the beginning. The first word is actually and, so it's obviously reflecting back to what has gone before, and in, in the Hebrew at least. It's a, Genesis is a story of beginnings, uh, the account of creation, the calling of the man Abraham, and then the patriarchs Isaac and Jacob, who will be the beginnings of a new nation. So we have in Genesis creation, beginning, and of course fall. And then we come to Exodus, and Exodus is full of redemption. And it's a critical book for us to understand the nature of redemption. And there are three big themes in uh, the book of Exodus. There's the theme of liberation, redemption, uh, which is clearly the account of Moses uh, leading, Moses first of all being the mediator of God's judgment on Pharaoh and then bringing them out of the land of bondage through the Red Sea into the land of promise. It's also uh, uh, a book which has a great deal to say about covenant because 
Again and again, we're told that the purpose of leaving Egypt is that the people might worship God at the mountain of his choice. And at Mount Sinai, God gives the people his covenant. He makes covenant with them. In other words, he comes into a binding agreement between himself. Uh, an agreement that he freely enters into, he lays down its terms, that uh, he will be their God and they will be his people. And these are the laws, these are the regulations by which they are to order their lives. So there is the, the bringing into being of a people, or the church, as we saw this morning. The reality, of course, is that God's people are not able to keep God's law. They, they break it. And so the, the, last, the latter part of Exodus is all about how can God dwell amongst men? And there, is the, there are the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle and sacrifice, how God will dwell with Israel because of sacrifice. And we have this, it's a tremendous picture. Uh, we have the, all of the tents of Israel scattered over the desert, like the... Uh, grains of sand on the, on the shore. And there in the midst of all Israel's tent, God sets up his tent. And we have this foreshadowing of Jesus coming. And when John speaks about Jesus coming, there's that well-known expression that Jesus came, the word was made flesh and tabernacled amongst us. So there's the prefiguring of the coming of God into the midst of his covenant people because of sacrifice. So, we have this great illustration in Exodus of God's redemptive plan. God's plan to redeem a people. God's plan to judge the powers that threaten them. To claim a people as his firstborn. And to make them into a holy nation in whom he dwells by his spirit. And Moses is the mediator that God uses in the Exodus, uh, and as we, we've said already uh, to the young people, he is all along pointing us to Jesus in his work. Uh, he is the one who leads his people in a great deliverance or exodus. He shepherds the flock. He intercedes for the people. And Moses even at one point promises the people that God will raise up a prophet like him. So when Jesus comes, there is this expectation of a, of a new Moses. And when Jesus is feeding the people in the wilderness and multiplies loaves and fish for them, uh, the people recognize the, the messianic implications. Here is the prophet, the one like Moses. Well, in this opening chapter, we're going to look at three uh, different uh, headings. First of all, we see that God uh, is at work in, in God is at work in, in dark times. That's the overall theme. Uh, first of all, we see His people are growing in the night, kingdom growth in the night. Then we see the oppression of God's people by spiritual powers, and then thirdly, we see the resistance movement of God's people in Egypt, growth in the night. So, here's a book that begins with the word in Hebrew, and deliberately reflecting back to Genesis. And we see that in a number of ways. There, there is the, the opening conjunction, uh, 
And there's also the reminder of the, the, the names of the people who first went down to Egypt, the sons of Jacob. Now, you would think, this is hardly necessary, is it? Hardly necessary for Moses uh, to remind us of who it was that went down to Egypt. We've just been uh, hearing about them in the book of Genesis. Yet Moses, the author, is reminding the first readers of the book, this is the rock from which you were hewn. These are your roots, O Israel. These were the people who first came down to Egypt. Our identity is an enormously important thing. And the biblical records place enormous importance on genealogies which connect the present generation with past believers. can make uh, difficult uh, preaching material, but the lists are there for a purpose. They are there to root the present generation in the historical people of Israel and the promises that were given to them. They're a reminder to this generation of their identity. This is your people. When, uh, when we moved to Skye, and we've been in Lewis for six years, we moved to Skye to, uh, to Staffan, I remember one of the, the, the most powerful uh, experiences was visiting uh, a lady, an old, older lady who lived with her, her bachelor brother in, in Gig and Staffan. And I had never met her before. And she was able to locate me using uh, the, the, the device of the patronymic, or your, your uh, genealogy. She listed my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather to five generations. Never seen this woman before. That was a powerful thing. Uh, what it said to me at the time was it didn't matter how many years I'd been living away from the sky. These were my roots. This was my people. I'd been located in, in, a, in a stream of, of generations. And that's really important. That's, that's why we have that continually in the Old Testament. These, uh, these lists of, of the generations. Uh, the, the Lord is saying to, to the people of Israel, this is, this is the root. This is the, this is the people to whom you belong. These are the people who first received the promise. Our identity as, as Christians is, is so important. We constantly need to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. Pater, in uh, his, his chapter on sonship, has got a very uh, powerful insight that we need every day to remind ourselves, God is my father, Jesus is my elder brother, the saints in the church are my brothers and sisters. Heaven is my home, and every day brings me one step nearer. That's why these names are at the beginning of the chapter. Moses is saying, these are your people, these are your roots. You've been down here for 430 years, but you're the people of Israel, the inheritors of the promise. It's interesting as well, another uh, connection with Genesis is the, the vocabulary, some of the language that's used in the chapter. Uh, creation vocabulary. Verse 7, the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied. Okay? 
That registers, doesn't it? Uh, that's the command given at creation uh, to, to mankind to be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 1.28. Um, and the Hebrew is, is actually even stronger. It's literally, the Israelites became fruitful and swarmed. They increased in number and became exceedingly strong. Uh, that word swarm uh, is used again in Genesis 8.17 when, uh, when the animals came out of the ark. Uh, they are commanded to literally to swarm and be fruitful and multiply. So there are these echoes of creation, of this creative force, this blessing of, of being fruitful, that God first speaks into creation and is at work within his own people. His own people are multiplying. There is a life force in their midst. And of course, what Pharaoh will do, he will seek to bring death. He will oppose the the, the fructifying blessing of God with his death wish upon uh, the Hebrew babies. So the people are multiplying, even in the, the dark night of their oppression in Egypt. And what's happening, of course, is the fulfillment of the promise. Here is the promise that uh, was given to Abraham, that he would have uh, seed as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Moses has already been anchoring us to the patriarchs. And we're being reminded, God is faithful. God is faithful. And all of this taking place during the silence of the years. 430 years in Egypt. Imagine that. And there's no biblical record of much going on in that time. The Israelites are simply getting on with life. They are passing on from one generation to the next the worship of Yahweh. They're calling to mind God's covenant. They're circumcising each generation of baby boys. They're calling on the name of the Lord in prayer. God is blessing them. And he's keeping his promise to multiply them. It's often the way, isn't it, that, that we have this kingdom growth going on quietly, as it were, in the night. love that description of the, the growth of the kingdom that Jesus gives in terms of the seed that grows alone. He said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces corn, first the stalk, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Mark 4, 26, 28. The church often grows like that. The church grows, yes, grows through great forward movements in times of revival, but often it simply grows like the seed in the night, unobserved. There's no fanfare. No trumpets are blowing. There are no headlines. But there's growth. Would that God would give us that kind of quiet, solid growth in Hope Church. 430 years in Egypt and the people have multiplied. 
They've become a strong people. And eventually, somebody did take notice. Somebody, that is Pharaoh, uh, who comes to power and he doesn't know about Joseph. Now, that could mean either he had never heard about Joseph from the, the annals of the Pharaohs, or he willfully ignored the fact that there had been an Israelite who did the people good, who was a man of honor. All he can see is a racial threat. There are a lot of non-Egyptians in the land, and who knows where their loyalties would lie if there was to be an invasion by an alien power. So he resolves to act shrewdly for his own interests. Now, it's interesting that all along, this pharaoh is not named. There's plenty of detail in the account, but there's no name given to pharaoh. We'll mark on that again later on. Uh, now, that may simply be a, a slap down. It may mean that we're to understand Pharaoh. Uh, you may think you're a big deal, but you're no more important than anyone else in God's sight. You're a sinner. Or it may be that, in not giving him a name, uh, Pharaoh is an individual who's also being generalized. He is the anti-God force in this story. He's a historical character who has uh, a wider significance. He is the, the, the very embodiment of evil in his day. He opposes God and God's people. And we're to see that in the, in the conflict between Moses and Pharaoh, this is not a conflict between uh, a, a Jewish young, a Jewish man and a powerful Egyptian monarch. This is a conflict between God and the gods of Egypt, the false gods of Egypt, represented by Pharaoh. All of the, the hellish forces of darkness are made to appear in the oppression of Israel by Pharaoh. And he begins by enslaving God's people. He sets them to build two store cities uh, for uh, himself. Uh, ironically, of course, the, the, the people of the Israelites had come uh, to Egypt because their, uh, their forebear, Joseph, had done this very thing for the well-being of Egypt. He had built these great stores for grain so that the people might survive the famine. They had been given land in which to continue as, as shepherds, freely grazing their flocks, providing for themselves and quietly prospering. And now, this Pharaoh, with this demonic impulse to crush the people of God, uh, enslaves them. And they are oppressed, but ironically, uh, they, the more they're oppressed, uh, the, the more their workload is increased, the keener the smart of, this, of the whips on the backs of the people, the more it is they seem to multiply. Oppression and slavery uh, does nothing to, to halt the growth of God's people. Again, it's a picture of what happens again and again and again down through history. A mad king, a mad emperor comes to the throne. And you have a Nero or an emperor Diocletian. And the Romans send the Christians into the Colosseum to be ripped apart by wild animals. You read of dreadful 
atrocities, uh, not just in Rome, but right throughout the Roman Empire, in, in Lyon, where uh, Christian women were, were uh, bound to, to, to red-hot iron seats and torn apart by wild animals. Madness. The fury of hell unleashed against the Church of Christ. And what happens? The Church multiplies. Come to the time of the, the Reformation. Uh, Patrick Hamilton, George Wishart, burned at the stake for preaching the rediscovered doctrines of grace. What happens? The Reformation takes grip. Europe is transformed. The Church of God multiplies. Communism comes to China, 1949. The, the missionaries are forced out. There's the long period of, of silence. Mao Zedong brings about the cultural revolution in the mid-60s, and the, the Christian church endures severe persecution. And for this long period of time, we have no idea what is going on in China. There are no mysteries any longer to bring us news of what's happening. Then come the years of openness, and we discover that in the dark night, the church has multiplied. It's become the second largest evangelical community in the world. Fastest growing church. God at work in the dark. Egypt's demon kings enraged to see that the Israelites are simply multiplying more than ever and now begins not a regime of slavery but a regime of, of death. First of all, the midwives are instructed to kill every male boy that is born and then he's thwarted by them and he moves on to a policy of infanticide, calling for the, the drowning of every male boy in the land amongst the Hebrews. So we have this dreadful time of suffering by the Israelites. Why was there this, this time of suffering? It's easy in hindsight to say that the, that the Lord is going to bring about the growth of his church and the liberation of his church. But in the middle of it all, when you're in a brick factory, when, you're, when your back is, is raw and bleeding from the, the strokes of the whip, when the Egyptian soldiers have, have come around and have taken uh, the, the baby from the crib and the house is full of wailing, glib answers won't do. Couldn't God have achieved his ends without all this amount of suffering? And only God knows the answer to these questions. But we can say, we can at least pose another question, would the Israelites have left Egypt so readily had they not come through this persecution? They had over 400 years to acclimatize to this way of life. God allowed this madcap Pharaoh's space to unsettle the bonds that four centuries of dwelling in Goshen had built up, and he prepared a people who were ready for Exodus. And it all comes home, listen, maybe, maybe some of us tonight are going through something which, in our own scale of things, it's difficult, a dark night 
situation. And maybe what we have to do when we can't see what God is doing in this, when we can't see any purposes, we simply have to trust Him to believe that God is indeed on the field when He seems most invisible and to take one step at a time, one step after the other, and that trust that God will in His time reveal His purposes, that He will prevail. Spiritual oppression, the reality of dark forces that are opposed to the people of God. And then there's this remarkable resistance movement, these remarkable ladies that are raised up to resist the Pharaoh. Shifra and Pua, presumably, because there are so many Israelites, presumably they're, they're the head midwives, that they have you know, midwives uh, under them. And they receive Pharaoh's pro-choice instructions. And he chooses to let the baby girls live, but commands the midwives to put the boys to death at birth. And it's really important for us to imagine, to think ourselves into how intimidating these commands were to Shifran Pua. They would have been called before the most powerful man in the world. They were marched down corridors, flanked by all the trappings of military might until at last they stood before this great and mighty monarch, the Pharaoh. And on their side, who are they? They're two women from a despised ethnic group who are being steadily pressurized by the state. Imagine, uh, imagine two Roma uh, women from Govan Hill being brought uh, down to London, summoned to appear in 10 Downing Street, and they're obliged to give the, the addresses of people that they know who are there uh, without the proper paperwork. Absolutely intimidated by the situation. Scale that up by 10 times, 100 times, and you've got some idea of what it would have been like for Chitra and Pua before Pharaoh. An atmosphere of total intimidation. And what we expect to read then is Shifra and Pur feared Pharaoh and were quick to do what Pharaoh asked. Except that's not what we read. We read that Shifra and Pur feared God. Feared God. They were brought before all the machinery of Egyptian power. They knew that there is a higher throne. There is one who reigns and is to be truly feared. They realize too that there are times when we are called as believers to disobey the state powers. That civil disobedience is sometimes not only justifiable, but it's a necessity laid upon Christians. We're called to be distinctive in this world, to obey God rather than men. And the trouble, of course, is that many who call themselves Christians have a God that is actually far too small. And the world looms large in their thinking. The penalty of losing popularity, losing face, losing employment, losing a potential marriage partner seems 
too high, too costly, and so they fear man rather than God. See, there's this proper fear of God. There is an understanding that God is awesome and to be revered. There is a, a recognition that there is a judgment throne set and a day when all will appear before him. A desire to hear God's approval rather than the approval of men. Shifran Pua had a God who was great and they feared him rather than Pharaoh. And these lovely God-fearing women mount the first pro-life resistance movement and they refuse to comply with Pharaoh's demands. Now, I don't think there's any point actually in trying to justify the, the reasons that Shifran Pua give to Pharaoh why it is that there are all of these surviving Hebrew baby boys. The Bible doesn't present the actions, even of biblical heroes and heroines, as models to copy. Very often it's a reminder that the, the best of us are sinners at best. There is an element in even our best deeds that falls short of God's glory. We need to repent of our very repenting, so bound up in sinner we. So there's no excusing the fact that they're deceitful in the response uh, to Pharaoh. But the fact is that they stood firm, and God blesses them. And we're specifically told he blessed them with family, because they resisted. And the fact remains that in the nation's darkest hour, when God seemed absent, there were two women who knew that God was very near. Two women for whom the majesty of God was more real than any earthly majesty, and who were motivated to act in faith, to oppose the forces of darkness that were threatening the people of God, to fear God, to obey him, and to leave the consequences to God himself. Do what is right, and God will take care of the consequences. That is this, the only safe rule to live by. And that's a great example, isn't it, for us, not only in our dark nights when we don't know what is going on, but in every moment of life. See, for every one of us, there must come a point in our lives where we must stand up and be counted. For all of us, at some stage in our life, there comes a point where the question is, who is on the Lord's side? Have you given your answer to that? Is your God too small? Is your regard for the world too great? Your fear of man too great? Do the people around you at work, even in your family, know that you fear God rather than man? That is the most important uh, matter really facing us. And in the end of the day, our significance turns on whether or not we are willing to stand uh, with the people of God and resist uh, the evil one. Because this man, who was the greatest man in all the world, 
uh, the head of the greatest military machine in the world has no name. He is the unnamed Pharaoh. And Shifra and Pua, um, their names don't exactly trip off the tongue, but we have them in our Bible. They're up there in lights. They're real heroines. They're up there with Ruth and Naomi and Rahab. And we are giving thanks to God for them in, in, in one respect tonight. They stood firm. They defied Pharaoh. They were God's resistance movement. And their names are in Scripture. And their names are in the Lamb's Book of Life, which is the ultimately important thing. So, God is at work, even in the darkest of nights. And therefore, let's not be afraid to stand up and be counted and to do whatever God calls on us to do and to leave the consequences of doing what's right up to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this wonderful opening to the uh, Exodus account. We thank you, Lord, for these two women. Uh, women who, in one sense, were obscure, but you have brought fame and honor to because they feared you and they did what was right, regardless of the opposition. Lord, give us a proper boldness to stand uh, on your side, no matter how few will stand with us, and to trust you, to see us through, to deal with the consequences for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to sing Martin Luther's hymn now, which really reflects his readiness to uh, to stand on God's side, no matter how overwhelming the, the opposition to a gospel stand. A safe stronghold, our God is still a trusty shield and weapon. He'll help us clear from all the ill that hath us now overtaken. The ancient prince of hell has risen with purpose fell. Strong male of craft and power, he weareth in this hour. On earth is not his fellow. <laughs>